On this episode of Ed Scoop's Cutting Edge Podcast from Scoop News Group, less structure, more flexibility. We're never going back to the you know eight to five body in the chair in the building that uh, we've proven that we can be uh, actually, frankly, more effective with more flexibility. This is Ed Scoop's Cutting Edge Podcast. Every other Tuesday, we dive deep with decision makers on what's next in higher education IT and online learning. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening across the community. Hybrid learning has the potential to make higher education more flexible, accessible, and efficient, but not without concerted effort, according to a new report from Educause. The report includes exercises for institutional leaders looking to maximize the potential of hybrid learning on and off campus. Enrollment numbers have yet to recover from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to new data from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. Undergraduate and graduate student numbers fell by 1.1% this fall compared to last year, adding to an overall decline of 3.2% over the last two years. Colleges and universities are under pressure to attract more students due to low enrollment numbers, and they're willing to spend more money on technology to do so, according to survey data from student information system provider Genzibar. The survey found that 64% of administrators are planning to increase their tech spend in the 2023-2024 academic year. You can find all these stories and more on edscoop.com and in today's show notes. The University of Wisconsin is taking the lessons learned around workforce during the pandemic forward as they look to recruit and retain the next generation of IT professionals. Lois Brooks, Vice Provost for Information Technology and Chief Information Officer at the University of Wisconsin, tells me why she's focusing even more on the workforce post-pandemic. A couple of big areas of focus for me right now. First is, uh, like it is for pretty much everyone everywhere, thinking about the workforce. How do we retain, attract a high quality workforce? How do we make ourselves a fantastic place to work? Um, How do we care for the staff that we have in this new normal that we're in? Is probably, you know, people do the work of the university, so people are always our top priority. And so that's top of mind for me. A couple other big, more technical areas that we're working on, although they're also very human oriented. One is research cyber infrastructure. We're doing some pretty uh, major advances there. And the other is cybersecurity, looking at, we already have a robust cybersecurity practice like most big universities, but looking at really extending that um, around all of the complexities that are us and around the emerging new threats. So, so those are kind of my big topics this particular week. Let's dive in a little bit on workforce. I mean, what's what are you working on there? What are some of those specific initiatives? Well, uh, I just set that up by saying, oh, yeah, the last couple of years in higher ed were really, really difficult, really challenging, and as we went fully remote for teaching, for research, for operations. That work rested on the shoulders of the IT staff, and they were exemplary. They did everything that was asked of them. They did it well. They did it while managing uh, complex home lives. And as we come out of the pandemic and have more options for flexibility and being back on campus, I think they rightfully say, you know, we were fantastic being flexible. Why can't we continue to be flexible, flex our hours, flex our locations, come together when it matters that we're together for engagement events, work from home when we're on video, when we're heads down, but really let us drive our modality every day. And by the way, keep in mind that we're knocking it out of the park every day for this university. And so I think that's really the future we're coming into, that people really do want it all. They want to be deeply engaged and love their work. They want to enjoy their coworkers. They want to uh, be able to manage complex family lives. Um, and that's that we're never going back to the you know eight to five body in the chair in the building. 
that uh, we've proven that we can be uh, actually, frankly, more effective with more flexibility. So what are we working on? You know, I I can say all this, but I really uh, worry about kind of the long-term consequences of this. Are we going to miss opportunities for mentoring? Are we going to miss opportunities to really engage people, help them grow in their careers, maybe um, uh, miss seeing the spark of talent that tells us somebody's ready to take on more? And so what I worry, or I wouldn't say I worry about, what we actively work on then is vibrancy no matter the modality. Are, is every person engaged and connected? Are we um, ensuring that the people who are working not in the office are absolutely as engaged as the people who have to be in the office or have chosen to come in the office that day? We've actually moved beyond that. And we're proactively working on um, extending professional development. We've always had a lot we've done there, but really doubling down on professional development opportunities, not just conferences and training, but the opportunity to get to new technology and experiment, to work with sandboxes. We're extending our communities of practice and then um, working on um, proactively doing a lot of peer training silo busting events, um, helping people really talk, find peers to talk to their um, uh, about their about their advancements, their experimentation, the things that they've learned. So really making human contact, human connection our top priority, no matter the modality. You talked about the vibrancy, no matter the modality, and, and really focusing on that engagement. Uh, when you're doing that, I mean, how are you uh, how are you measuring that? We did some climate survey work with a professional organization a year or so ago where we pulled the staff and we really checked in on how they were doing, how were they feeling, how was their level of connectedness, how was their level of trust, um, and um, took that data and did a really extensive program within the, the central organization at the university to to understand where we might have some improvement at the team level, improvements at the organizational level. So we did an empirically and then uh, took action on it. And we'll actually be doing a little check-in survey coming up soon now to see what kind of progress we've made on that. Um, we also just talk to people and check. I do weekly open office hours for the entire IT community. We have a few hundred people a week who come in and we talk informally about these issues. Um, how are people doing? How are they connecting? What's working for engagement? And we have conversations across the board on things like virtual whiteboarding or tips and tricks for getting an audience engaged or, you know, things people are learning as we're doing more hybrid meetings, which are frankly more difficult to do well than a fully virtual meeting. You know, how are people making those kinds of things work? So we just keep it as a present, lively, open topic across the university. One of the things that stands out to me about what you're doing is that uh, all of this is is good for uh, staff that you already have or that you've had on board for a, a little while. But uh, obviously, a new dynamic is onboarding new folks in sort of in right. this environment. You don't have that rapport. You don't have that that time that you've spent working together to sort of build out on these things. Um, how does that factor into to these plans and to these efforts? You know, we're actually actually working on onboarding. We've had you know normal turnover, and uh, and bring new staff on. And so the teams are are working on a lot of different really good ideas, um, some with uh, kind of spicing up our normal onboarding training that we used to bring you into a room and you'd stay for half of a Monday morning, really trying to make that much more engaged, much more multimedia, get more people involved now that it's so much easier to drop in and out of meetings. Um, teams are working on 
a peer mentor, somebody who is, you know, their person to go to, to, you know, who do I ask this question? Where do I find kinds of questions as they onboard? Um, setting up virtual meetings with everybody on the team just to get to know each other. Most of our teams build in some social time as well. Um, it might be a weekly drop in lunch together virtually or hybrid or virtually. It might be, uh, you know, kind of a monthly um, kind of um, fun engagement of some kind. And it, it runs the gamut. What people talk about, some are, you know, sharing recipes or talking about books or sports. We have book reading clubs that happen virtually. So what we're doing then is um, working within the ethos of each team, what works for them, but then uh, carving out and making it okay to not have every meeting always just be about the agenda and then making sure everybody is reaching out to that new employee to say, hi, this is who I am. This is how you find me. Uh, this is, by the way, maybe the, the hours I flex into. Um, so really trying to to recreate what might have happened that first day stopping by to shake hands. Let's dive into cyber a little bit. Uh, tell me a little bit about your cybersecurity work and, uh, and, and how you're approaching it. Well, so you have to imagine a big public research university. We've got between employees and students, let's call it 80,000 people um, involved. And then they collaborate, they travel with their teams, they travel out into the fields. Uh, we host athletic events for um, H, so hundreds of, or hundreds of thousands of um, uh, kids across the state. We've got um, performing arts. So it's this incredibly porous environment, deeply engaged with the, with the people, with the community around us. Um, and so this notion, this notion of a border is gone to say, you know, the firewalls are it. And we, we certainly have firewalls, but, um, but that kind of assumes that everybody's inside the firewall and that's just not the world we live in. So really understanding a couple of things. One is that uh, cybersecurity is a team sport, that everybody has a role in this. You and I have a responsibility not to click phishing links and to understand that those are phishing links. Let's keep it secure, you know, to keep our devices patched. Um, the people who are administering systems clearly have a role. The people who are handling data, particularly our sensitive data, patient care, intellectual property, uh, personnel records, those kinds of things, you know, have an additional duty to take extra steps to keep that secure. Um, and so what we're moving from beyond now, and we've done the same thing as everybody else, you know, where we, we have defenses, we monitor regularly, we remediate, we educate. We're really moving on now to something called layered security, which is putting in additional layers around the most um, sensitive and protected areas. You may have several steps you need to go through to get to that data. Um, it may be ensuring your device is patched and your multi-factor authentication and um, a few other a few other layers, uh, because we're we're not only are we so big and complex, but um, if we um, completely blocked off access to everything, the university wouldn't be able to function. We wouldn't be able to do research or teaching or community engagement. So we're really starting now to think about kind of these multi layers of as much flexibility will be secure out to the edge. And as much security as we can possibly get around the, that most precious uh, of our data that must, um, that must remain secure or real harm would come to people and to the university. So that's really how we're approaching it. Um, kind of big investments, big project areas right now, we're doing a lot of work with endpoints with, uh, with devices. 
That's, by the way, really hard because devices aren't just tablets and cell phones and computers. Devices are doors and freezers and microscopes and drones and a lot of other things. But um, but working, we're working on devices quite a bit, um, working on increasing our um, automation around discovery of problems. You, 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 we hear, you know, folks in your position saying things like this, right? Talking about the layer of security, talking about all these different things. But we also hear about that student experience so much. We talk about, we hear about that, that, that digital experience. I mean, how are you balancing the two to make sure that obviously things are secure and folks are, are, are safe, uh, but also that, that, you know, interacting with campus and with the university online uh, is easy and, and sort of seamless and, and goes well. Yeah. You know, the multi-factor authentication is, is kind of inconvenient for about a week and then it just becomes so fast and so routine. Um, at the start of school, and we see this every year, we had this huge uptick in people clicking through on phishing, having to reset passwords until we got all of the students onto multi-factor authentication. And there's a real inconvenience if you've got to, you know, if you get shut out and you've got to go um, go manage that while you're trying to get registered for your classes, kind up for clubs, all of those things that you need to do at the first week of school. So um, I think that 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 has that is kind of smoothed out, to be honest. Um, you know, and we um, we work with things to make it easier, like longer timeout windows, still within reason, but longer timeout windows, uh, so you're not constantly having to reauthenticate. And, and I have to say, I think for the most part, most of us, I hope, it's, I guess, a little bit of a privileged comment, but most of us have a, a phone nearby, so it's pretty fast to do. The um, um, <laughs> it's terrible to say we've got things that are more intrusive coming your way. Um, one of the things we're talking about now, and this is, you know, it sounds simple, but it's really hard on a college campus, is the point at which you'll have to, will be able to auto-certify when you try to log in that your device has been patched before you log in, and that if your device isn't up to date, that you won't be able to get past that um, that layer of security. And, you know, that's kind of a compact with the whole community that one person coming in with a virus, once they're inside the secure perimeter, can it can spread sideways and affect other people, can impact the access to other people's data. Um, you know, and so, you know, part of that compact is each of us has to make sure we're secure. But if you're, you know, half an hour before your paper is due and we're blocking your device because you're not patched, that's going to be a rough 1130 to midnight window on a Saturday. Right. And yeah. so we really need to figure this out, figure out how much we can automate, how much we can communicate, how much we can make it easy for people before we pull down that gate and lock it all the way. Uh, Let me just give you, like, okay, a, yeah, if I ahead. could, maybe a quick story on the student experience. And this is something I worry about, think about. And again, it's hard. Um, we have, give or take, 45,000 students, about 10,000 of them live in residence at the university, which means their residences are their homes. And so even though they're on the university network, they want to be able to do gaming, do streaming services, things that that may not be compatible with their security protocols or our uh, performance protocols on the network. The other 35,000 of them live somewhere else in houses where they're on their own networks that they're configuring themselves, their own security standards, but they need to connect from these potentially non-secure locations back into the university systems to do their classwork and their engagement work. And so each of them represent a very different but a very real kind of a security and a uh, student experience um, kind of balancing act. It's a really good point. Yeah. 
I didn't, I didn't think about it that way. Uh, it, it's so interesting. Cause I just remember when I was in university, it was just, um, it was very much just like, Nope, can't do it. Like, you know, it was very much just locked down. You know, we had internet and everything, but it was like, you know, no, no game systems, no streaming services. It was just, well, you know, yeah, it was different. And we still have to do some of that because the protocols actually aren't compatible, but we know it's inconvenient and we know that it's their homes and we keep trying to find ways to solve that because our students want it all too. They want to be secure. They don't want to be hacked, but they actually do want to do, they want to live their full life on the network. Right. Right. Uh, before we wrap up here, I do want to go to research computing. Let's talk a little bit about that. I have I have 15,000 more cyber questions for you, but we'll have to save okay. that for another time. Let's go to research computing. Uh, huge, huge issue uh, for for a lot of public universities and a lot of these you know research focused universities. So so tell me a little bit about what the landscape looks like for you and, and what are some of those top areas of, of concern and thought in that space? You know, a quote, um, my my colleague, uh, we're, who is uh, our vice chancellor for research, we were just talking about this the other day, and he said, um, he said, uh, research cyber infrastructure is essential to research. Um, you know, you think about what research looks like um, in the modern age, you know, and we've got mass, devi- mass arrays of devices out across the fields and the ocean and the atmosphere, collecting and pumping data in. We've got satellites pointed up to the universe, into the radio telescopes, um, you know, uh, amassing data back in. We've got, you know, uh, you can do genomic sequencing in your pocket in minutes at this point with small devices generating, you know, each genomic sequence may generate a couple hundred thousand files that need to be pulled together and analyzed. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking at the quantity of research data growing by 50% a year. It's this huge explosion and the only barrier to be honest, is the imagination of our researchers, which means there's no barrier because they're so incredibly imaginative as they think about how to solve these kind of challenging intractable problems across human health, the environment, uh, and so on. So what we're looking at at Research Cyber Infrastructure, we're doing some pretty major investments at the university right now, uh, working collaboratively across the whole university to bring together um, uh, in, um, in kind of a common purpose and a shared work practice, several of our big research computing groups, we've made some pretty major investments in storage, which is basic, um, but necessary. You've got to put that data somewhere. Um, the federal agencies are um, announcing new requirements for publication of data next year. And so part of what we need to do then is help our researchers with that, have an archival practice that allows that data to be made available for as long as it needs to be uh, without being kind of an individual problem to solve. So we're tackling that one. Um, Like everyone else, doing a lot of work with the major cloud vendors right now, um, making pretty big strides with all of them in in a secure practice to make it much easier for our researchers to onboard, uh, much easier to uh, to move quickly, to have security. We just finished up some tooling. We're pretty excited about it. Sorry, this is kind of geeky, but uh, we're pretty excited about, but we've got tooling now that allows our researchers to onboard quickly into the public cloud with alerts that are set. So if the security profiles change um, in a way that might be dangerous, the, the researchers are, are auto-alerted that there's something happening in their containers uh, before the hack happens. And so those kinds of affordances uh, really make it much easier for the researchers to move. Um, It's also um, the federal agencies and common sense, 
require that you work in a secure environment, but that can be pretty expensive for researchers to do on their own. So we're doing a lot of work to try to pre-create secure environments for storage and computation so they can just go without having to, to take all those extra steps. Um, one of the areas we're not doing as much work on, but I, I would really love to get into more is kind of the next generation of visualization of research. I mean, we certainly visualize data, but really looking at a kind of the next generation of, um, of sophisticated visualization, rich visualizations, because that's growing as well. So it was kind of a quick romp through what we're, what we're doing here, but, um, we are one of the largest research universities in the country. And so it's a really kind of big and important part of our portfolio to make sure that we've got the cyber infrastructure that allows us to compete and to solve the world's problems. Lois Brooks, Chief Information Officer for the University of Wisconsin. You can read more about Lois and university workforce issues at edscoop.com. There are also links in today's show notes. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help make it happen, and the entire team contributes. Until next time, I'm Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.